We're continuing on in the book of John. And uh, this title this morning, Humble Glory, comes from one of the early church fathers, Origen, who talks about the entire life and ministry of Christ is marked by these two things, humility and glory. It is different than the glory that is typically sought by man. Typically, man desires a glory that draws attention to themselves and exalts themselves above everyone else. But he came in a lowly form as a baby, as a servant. He served his disciples. His his humility took him all the way to the cross. It was to be his moment of glory that we're going to talk about this morning, but it was a moment of humility. And this humility would be passed on to the disciples and Peter and to us. And one day we'll set up the glory that we will see fully in him one day. This humility marked all of Jesus' life, from suffering to glory, and it marks the life of believers as well. And it's interesting where we find ourselves in John because if we forget where we are last week, we don't understand the weight of this little passage. Because last week, the last words we hear is, and it was night. But right before that, Judas leaves. So it is night outside and it is night inside of Judas. But in this moment, the rest of what we will read in John 14 through 16, some of my favorite passages in Scripture, the most theologically rich and the most encouraging to the church, is done without Judas. This is to believers. Jesus is about to go to glory, and what he wants them to know and wants them to do is spoken to his true disciples. And so for the next few hours for the disciples and the next few months for us, we're going to break down these rich chapters. And we could easily spend a year just in these chapters and explain what Jesus desires for his disciples in the church age. And some of the things we're going to see here, this church age is marked by abiding in Christ. But there's going to be a problem in our text this morning. Because Peter wants to literally abide with Christ. He does not want him to leave. But Jesus will encourage them that you can still abide with me even after I leave because I will send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will remind you of me, will teach you and confirm everything that I have said to you. And so we see the establishment of the church and the precedent for who the church will be over these next few chapters. But first... The humility of Christ must lead to his hour, his hour on the cross, which will ultimately lead to his glory. And all this we're going to see over the next few chapters, that all this brings God the most glory, but it also brings him great pleasure to establish his people. And there's this beautiful mix of the two. God's glory in the establishment of an everlasting church. And we're going to dig into that this morning. So I want to jump right in because there's a lot I want to cover. And almost every week I'm tempted to break this text into two sermons. And I'm going to try not to make it two sermons. Um, But you guys don't have anywhere to be until dinner, right? John chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. When he had gone out, 
Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Lord, how awesome you are. How amazing it is that the God of all glory throughout eternity would humbly take on flesh and walk among us would desire to go to the cross to redeem a people for himself, would come as the Son of Man to accomplish a kingdom and dominion forever for the sake of the saints and his glory. Lord, we cannot even begin to wrap our minds around this. Thank you that you condescend enough to even reveal this to us. Lord, let us never lose the weight of this, that we love because you loved us first. And we only know what love looked like because you poured out your blood for us on the cross. Let us be a people who are marked by that blood. Let us be a people who are known for our love for one another because of your love for us and our love for you. And Lord, encourage each one of us when we have our Peter moments stick our feet in our mouths, that you are patient with us as you are patient with him. And then even in our stumbling and our bumbling, you redeem that to send the ripple of the gospel throughout all nations. What a privilege and honor it is to be your ministers and your ambassadors. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would guide us, teach us, go before me this morning For I'm a sinner, chief among sinners. Lord, not let me get in the way, but let your word be proclaimed rightfully and let it be applied to our hearts and not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. And this, in the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we begin in verse 31 with when he had gone out. The he here is referring to Judas. This conversation is intentionally held without Judas. Judas is gone. This is a family discussion. Judas is an interloper within these conversations and within this this, this ministry, and Judas has no right to be there. And everything that will follow from this point on is written to the family. This is written to believers. 
This is written to the little children. So Jesus begins, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now. The hour is here. Throughout John, my hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet come now. The wheels are set in motion. There's no turning back now. The betrayal is already committed in Judas's heart. All the pieces are put in place. And it will just be a matter of hours before he is turned over to the authorities. Now is the Son of Man glorified. I mean, if this was just any one of us, and we're about to be delivered over to the authorities, we're about to go to the cross, I would not be thinking about glory. I would not be using the words that Jesus uses. But thank God our Savior is not like us in every way. Now last week we talked about what was the purpose of of Judas' betrayal. Well, Immediately, it was to fulfill scripture, it was to increase the faith of the disciples, but also to begin the process of redemption, to send Jesus to the cross so that he could redeem his people, ultimately for our sake. That was the immediate purpose of Judas' betrayal. But the ultimate purpose is glory. And we don't all often associate those things. Because as humans, we're so emotionally connected to the visuals of the cross, the beatings and the mockings and the blood and the pain. But the purpose is glory by Jesus' own words. And let's dig in there. Now is the Son of Man glorified. How is the Son of Man glorified? And we've talked about that throughout John And um, we spent some time on the Son of Man title, but I want to just refresh our memories. We need to understand who the Son of Man is and what he signifies. Jesus' favorite title for himself was not a common messianic title. They weren't looking for the Son of Man. They were looking for a temporary king. They were looking for someone to rule on earth and deliver the Jews from the Romans. But I think Jesus uses this title Uh, for a specific purpose. Because as we're going to see in just a moment, as you you turn to uh, Daniel chapter 7, I want to just set up this, this passage. Daniel sees a vision. And Daniel sees the throne room of God, the Ancient of Days, referring to God himself, but specifically here the Father. And the Son of Man is someone who is able to stand before God, and no mere man can stand before God. And in this title, there is no political expectations. This is throne room glory. And anytime John refers to the Son of Man, it is either referring to glory or salvation. Now, how do those two things fit together? I think this passage in Daniel helps us understand that. Because this title, Son of Man, can only be attributed to and accomplished by Jesus. And in a specific way that brings God the most glory. There's going to be two verses here in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and verse 14. I want you to pay attention to the details here because this is going to set up everything that is to follow in this message. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, 
and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, what was given here, dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Bible study students, what's repeated here? Dominion. Which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. What is the glory of the Son of Man? A kingdom, dominion, rule, and power. So how does glory and salvation come together here? There is a sense in which there is glory attributed to the Son of Man that is not attributed unless he has dominion and a kingdom. What does it take to have dominion? You must have a people and a place to rule over. We spend a lot of time in this in Deuteronomy. Those two terms we go over and over again. Land and seed or offspring. These are the promises that were given to Abraham when God first pulls his people out of paganism. I will make you the father of many nations, people. I will give you a land for your eternal possession. And now we're seeing this in the Son of Man. Here's where these things come together. There will be a people and a kingdom that will last forever. And it is only the one who can go before the presence of God who can accomplish these things. Only the Son of Man. See, while the Jews were looking for something that was temporary and someone who would give them a political savior, Jesus has eternal glory in mind through the foreknowledge and plan of the Father. And we see this come together. The dominion that is promised to the Son of Man is his glory, his nation that is his for his possession. And what is the benefit of all this? Skip down to verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Think about that. Ye saints of the Lord, those of us who are in Christ Jesus, His glory is bringing in a kingdom and possession for Himself, and it is ours forever. Amen? Amen. Amen. Don't ever think about Jesus as a victim on his way to the cross. This is his victory march. And he is coming before his final moment in his earthly ministry where the wrath of God will be poured out on him for the sake of sinners so that he may be glorified and take his rightful throne before the Ancient of Days and rule where he is supposed to reign forever. He will trade in his crown of thorns for a crown of glory. That is what humble glory looks like. And it is all to the glory of God the Father and the benefit of the saints. You must understand this before we move on. This is why Jesus uses the Son of Man. This is what the glory of the Son of Man is. And this sets up everything else that is to follow. You with me? All right. That's verse 31. Now the son of, the son of Man, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. We must connect these things. That the full glory of the Son of God, the Son of Man, is ruling over His people in His place, on His throne forever. 
And the Son of Man designation does not compete with Jesus' deity. It supports it. It is in conjunction with it. The Son of Man is a divine title. It is for a human ruler with divine quality who can stand before God and not shudder. The Son of Man glorifies God because the Son of Man is God. And if that wasn't enough, he continues. Remember, whenever Jesus repeats himself, we lean in and we pay attention. Look what he says here in verse 32. If God is glorified in him, the Son of Man, God will also glorify him in himself. There's a reciprocal glory that goes on here. Between the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, being glorified in one another, and glorify him at once. Let's spend a few moments here. This is incomprehensible glory. Glory on top of glory on top of glory. Glory of the Father, glory of the Son of Man, glorified, glory happening immediately, all at once. There is going to be a moment in time when God's glory is put on display, and I want to spend some time there. Because by human estimation, there is no glory in a bloody cross. But how is God's glory shown on the cross? How are his divine attributes on display? I want you to consider a few of these. First, we see God's power on the cross. Not power to remove himself from the situation, but power to overcome death. Power to go into the grave for three days. And power that is impossible without God. That is his power to overcome the grave. We see God's justice the cross. God's justice brings him glory. Because our God is holy and our God is righteous and sin must be punished. God's justice is justly poured out by his wrath on Christ. His justice is satisfied by the blood of the spotless lamb. God's justice is upheld. Yet his mercy is declared and shown in a way that we can see it nowhere else. His mercy toward sinners rightfully deserving wrath. And it is His grace that saves them. It is out of His love that He went to the cross for them, took on His own wrath, gives what He requires by His own power. We see power and justice and mercy and grace and love at the cross and holiness. God is preserved because God does what only he can, but man must pay the penalty for what he has done. And we also see God's faithfulness because where the first Adam fell short, where the first Adam brought sin into the entire creation, the new Adam restored humanity the new adam redeemed what could not be redeemed by any other means god justified god glorified god and man in one only christ can be the son of man only christ can bring the glory that could happen at the cross only christ can redeem a people for his eternal possession this is the glory of god
on full display on the cross. So when he says, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. God encompasses, encompasses Father, Son, and Spirit. If Jesus is glorified, exalted, and he receives glory and majesty and honor and dominion and praise, therefore God receives glory and majesty and dominion and praise. You cannot separate these two things. We must understand this before we go any further. And Jesus is going to repeat this in many times, in many ways, throughout the gospel, the remainder of the gospel of John. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. This is my glory which I had with you before the foundation of the earth. And we're going to look at many passages that talk about this glory as love. So, if we understand now, Jesus is setting the tone for everything to come. He's telling them an eternal reality that they cannot even begin to, com to comprehend. But he speaks to them as they are. Look what he says in verse 33. Little children. He's explaining this grand, transcendent idea that they can't begin to comprehend. And he knows who they are. Little children. Young ones. This is a term of endearment. But also recognizing their immaturity and their inability to understand what he's telling them. But this is the basis for everything they, that he's going to tell them. Now, we are going to spend some time on this new commandment, but you cannot separate the commandment from the basis. You cannot just say, love one another and throw out everything that came before it. If you don't understand God's glory, you don't understand love. So as he approaches these little children, he says, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week, but just follow the train of thought here. The betrayal's done. Now is my hour to be glorified. I told the Jews, I'm telling you, you must stay here, but I'm not leaving you alone. Everything I'm about to tell you is what I want you to know and do until I return or until I take you home. This is going to flesh out the next three chapters. Even though you can't come with me, I'm leaving you something, and it's better. We'll, we'll get into that. And he begins with a new commandment. Verse 34, a new commandment I give you. And the first question to ask is, is it new? Leviticus 19, 18 says it's not new. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is not new. This is something that has always marked the people of God. This is not a generic, uh, you know, touchy-feely, fuzzy feeling about everyone you will ever see. God's people are to be marked by love. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor. You know what it means to love your neighbor? Love God's people. Not that that doesn't transcend outside of that, but God's people are to be different than all other people's. This is not new. John tells us the same thing. Look at 1 John 2, 7 through 10. It'll be up on the screen. Those of you who are quick in your Bibles, we're going to be moving around a lot today. Uh, try to help you out as much as I can. 1 John 2, 7 through 10. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. 
Why is it new? This is John in his later years writing as an elder. Look what he says. The words here are important. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him, in Christ, and in you. There is a sense in which the love in Leviticus was not as true as it is now in Christ and in the followers of Christ because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Because the light has come into the world, this love takes on a new depth and a new identity. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. That's what the commandment looks like. To love one another. We're going to flesh that out more as we go. So this, again, this always had implications for God's people. Now it is more particular. Because it is rooted in Christ. And it unites us in Christ. And so we're going to camp out here for a minute. I want to spend a few minutes talking about love. And before we get into it, I want us, I want us to understand that he's doing something new in the cross that did not happen before and could not happen before, he is unifying his bride. He brings his bride together, the the saints together. He unites them at the cross. They're united in his blood. His love for them on the cross will be, should be, must be shown to one another. But before we go any further, I want us to ask some, some questions here and examine ourselves when we think about love. Do we have a biblical definition of love? Do we know how to respond when the world talks about love? Because the world speaks about love often. It's, it's, it's a buzzword everywhere you look. The world speaks of shifting emotions. But when we understand love, our definition of love has to be rooted in the unshifting gospel. So I want to take a few moments to talk about love in the culture versus love in Scripture? What is cultural love versus biblical love? Because when someone says something, God is love, you must love one another, we must always ask, what do you mean by that? Because very often we use the same words and we mean very different things. So here's a disclaimer to the parents. I love family worship and I'm glad that kids are here. Um, But I'm going to speak about some things very directly here. Um, I will not make it inappropriate, but we need to engage where the culture is now. And trust me, if your child is old enough to sit in here, especially if they're in public school, they have heard everything I'm about to say. So when the culture talks about love, what they're really talking about is, I have a warm and fuzzy feeling about you. You, make, you, you give me butterflies inside, and I feel good when I say that, when I speak of love. But really what they're talking about when they talk about love is feelings and sex. This is what our culture has made love about. I feel this way about you now, therefore this is love. I'm attracted to you physically, therefore this is love. Love is a buzzword in our culture. We hear about it so often, but it is typically one of those two things. The first thing is the feelings. We are a society that falls in and out of love. That love is something I can feel today and not feel tomorrow. I can apply today and not apply tomorrow. It can change whenever I want it to change. It's whatever I want it to be at the moment. And as Angie's been telling me the last couple weeks, she's like, do I I need to get my steel toe boots on because you're going to start stepping on toes? (laughs) Probably. 
Um, so it's kind of appropriate that we just finished Valentine's Day. Now, David chuckles, um, is it wrong to show someone you love them? Of course not. But is that all there is? Is love just a commercial gimmick? Is it red hearts and dinners and jewelry and flowers and, 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 and chocolates? Is that what love is? Is it all it is? What kind of husband would I be if I waited till February 14th to remind me that I need to love my wife? I'd be a terrible husband. What kind of love would we, would we have or do we have if, if it's one day a year that expresses it? I love my wife. It takes a lot more than one day to tell her how much I love her. And we tell each other all the time, I love you and I will never stop loving you, but I may not like you right now. <laughs> she says it to me more. Than, yeah. <laughs> there is a difference between love that is actually acted on and is lived by than feelings that come and go. And the other part about it that the culture loves, not just feelings, being driven by urges, is taking those urges to the next step. Our culture is obsessed with sex. It is. Everywhere we turn, we hear messages about love. Make love. Love is love. Can't you just let people love whoever they want? Of course we want people to love one another. But what you really mean is can't they just sleep with whoever they want? Can't you just have sex as much as you want with whoever you want? Are you, aren't you against, are you against love? No, we're against sexual immorality paraded as love. Indulgence of the flesh dressed up in a nice term that has now been watered down. And let's, let's be real here. In our culture, the homosexual lobby and, and Hollywood is trying to corrupt the word love. It's trying to turn it into something that it is not. It's trying to make it all about physical relationships that come and go. And use a, love, or use a word that is attributed to God and his love for his people. And make it shameful. And it's getting worse. And we need to be able to recognize this. There are even some perverts out there who are starting to interpret scripture and Jesus' love for his disciples and their love for one another as sexual. This is being written in translations and taught in churches as we speak. Now, granted, they are on the fringes, but this couldn't have been even spoken about in previous generations. We are in a culture that flaunts this, and we have to be aware of this. And we have to know how to spot the errors. And it breaks my heart when I hear Christians confused on this. When I hear Christians distort this, Christians more influenced by the world and what the world tells them love is than what Scripture says, we must be able to spot these things. We must be able to tell the difference between cultural love and biblical love. And I want to spend some time on biblical love. And I'm glad that I can speak for this body, for brothers and sisters who love one another. Men who love men, women who love women, has nothing to do with feelings or sex. Amen? Amen. Let us have a biblical view of these things, regardless of what the culture says. Because the distinction here is all of love that we see in Scripture is based on a verb. 
Now, the Bible has nouns for love, but all of them point back to the love of God, the steadfast, faithful love of God. Biblical love is based on action. Cultural love is based on feeling. And if love is an action, therefore it is a choice. First God's and then ours. And you choose what you love. You either love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, mind, and strength, or you love yourself. So what does Jesus say here? A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. How has he loved them? His glory is also the culmination of his love, as we just saw a moment ago. His ministry, death and resurrection, shows what Christ's love is. It is love in action. I want to fly through some of these verses real quick. There's going to be a list of references up on the screen. If you can follow along with me, please do. It's not on the screen. You should know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We love this verse. But do we meditate on what it shows us about God's love? God so loved the world, he took on flesh. God so loved the world, he was humble. God so loved the world, he was a servant. God so loved the world, he washed feet. God so loved the world, he hung around with these little children, disciples. God so loved his that he went to the cross. God so loved them that he ascended to glory and still intercedes for them. God so loved them that he sent his spirit. God so loved them that he is coming back for them. Do we meditate on the power of John 3.16? The next one, look at Romans chapter 5. We mentioned this two weeks ago. But if you're going to meditate on some scripture and understanding God's love, park in Romans 5. I'm just going to look at two verses here. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do we know what love is? God loves sinners. Christ died for us. If you're in John, it's probably on the same page, and we'll get there in a few weeks. Look at John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. Jesus expands on this. John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. The great commission, the charge for, for Christ, his encouragement of the disciples, his whole purpose in calling them friends is so that they love one another. He doesn't just want us to evangelize so we can add numbers. Because as the church grows, love grows. And the, and the, and the love of God is shown on greater and greater display as believers all over the world and throughout history love one another in his name. So what does that look like practically? Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians is a great book on 
Christology and how it applies to the life of the believer. Look at how he begins chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. How do we be imitators of God? We walk in love. What is love? Christ died for you. Imitate that. Let's, get, let's even get more practical. Well, what, can you give us an example of, of this? Is there anything you've given us as an example to show us this? Why, yes. Paul has. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Marriage is this picture. Husbands and wives. Husbands at working or acting as Christ, laying down his life for his wife. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Marriage should point us to Christ. That, still speaking about Christ here, verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Why did he go to the cross? What was his glory? Presenting us in splendor. That is love without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. God's glory is our holiness. In the same way, husbands should love your wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. I love how Paul just weaves in and out marriage counseling with the gospel. You cannot separate healthy marriages from the gospel. You cannot separate loving relationships from the gospel. Because we are all members of his body. He even extrapolates this out. This applies in the marriage and this applies in the body. Love one another because Christ loved you. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the glory of God as an example for us. This is the love of God as an example for us. Let's take this to probably the ultimate example of this where John himself expounds on this. 1 John chapter 4. And I'm going to read a big chunk here because it needs to. It needs to be read. And we need to be rooted in this. When we hear the culture talk about love, let us not be tempted to cheapen it. What does Scripture say about love? 1 John chapter 4, 7 through 21. Thank you, Bubba. Beloved. Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. See, we, we read past this, but did you hear what he just said? Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You cannot love without God. There is no love apart from God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. And people stop there. And say, oh, God is love. God is love. Whatever that means. But what does John mean by that? What does it mean that God is love? It means in this, 
the love of God was made manifest among us. The love of God made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. What is the love of God? Christ taking on flesh to redeem his people that we might live in him. That is what it means that God is love. Not God is love so he approves of whatever wicked thing I want to do today. Not God is love so he tells me I'm great all the time no matter what I do. God is love because he sent his son so that we might live together. God sent his son for the church. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he is in us because he has given us of his spirit. What also is another mark of love and a reminder of love? The spirit of God out of love given to the body for the sake of love. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be a Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Love rooted in God sending Jesus to earth for the sake of his church. By this is love perfected. You want to know what love looks like? Abiding in God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, speaking in the biblical sense, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he cannot see, who he, cannot, who he has not seen, cannot love God who he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is not just some fleeting feeling. I know I sound like a broken record, but we need to get this. Love cannot be separated from the gospel. When we think of love, we think of the gospel. When we think of the gospel, we think of love. The love of Christ for his people going to the cross. The love of Christ sending his spirit to not lead them as orphans. We got one more. Colossians chapter 3. I love this as Paul writes to the church in Colossae. And he's encouraged in them. And he wants to give them a commendation he is thankful to God for them. What is he thankful for? Colossians verse, chapter 1, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ and, your, and the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. There is no love without the gospel. 
This love is not possible without the cross. This love that Paul commends and that John exhorts is not possible unless the Son of Man went to glory. You cannot understand this unless you have heavenly riches. It's not a currency that you can even change out. So when Jesus says that love one another just as I have loved you, what does that mean? How do we distill that down? This is sinners so overcome and humbled by his love for us that we can't help but pour out love for one another. You must know Christ's love poured out for your sins before you can love another sinner and their sins. And it is amazing that the Son of Man is glorified in dying for us. He is glorified when we love one another. And our glorification will be perfect. You know what it means to be glorified in Christ? One day when he will make all things new, we will see the love of God perfectly and we will love one another perfectly. This is his desire. This is what he came for. This is what brings him glory. And what is the result of this love? Verse 35. Or, uh, yeah, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Our love for one another in the church There is a specific type of love that happens in the church that cannot happen anywhere else, that has no basis anywhere else. That is a witness. This is not some generic love, but this is a witness of the church, our love for one another. We have an opportunity to show something that the the culture has no category for. We have an opportunity to witness what Christ has done in our lives by our speech and by our words speak truth to a culture that knows nothing but lies. And let's be real, like, has the church always done this well? Is the church known for its love for one another by and large? Not really. I mean, sadly, you know, a lot of these stereotypes in the church exist for a reason, and typically in the church, in general, at large, we're known for more of what we're against than what we're for. Let us, as people of God's word, know what we are for. And I can't speak for everyone else but I can speak for us here. Is this what we are known for? Do all people know that we are his disciples by our love for one another? Do they know that about us? Because if they don't, they should. I mean, think about this. If all that Christ has done for us, his love poured out for us, how could we not do the same for one another? I know for many of you I'm preaching to the choir. This is an easy message for a lot of us. But I want you to understand how different the message of our culture is. Because if you make Christ love anything less than the sacrificial, if you make love, excuse me, anything less than Christ's sacrificial love for the church, poured out for them so that we might pour it out for one another, you make it a cheap counterfeit. So this is the teaching basis for everything that is to come after this. And this is the basis for Peter's response. This is going to be a hard transition here. And um, Peter is such a great example for us, mostly negatively, um, for the first 20 chapters. But I like what he does here. Look at, look at how Peter responds. Because Peter fixates. Jesus could, could, could teach for two hours, and Peter zones in on one thing. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Not, what do you mean by glory? Not, 
what does this mean to love one another? Why are, are, you, are you telling us this? You know, um, not uh, any other question, but where are you going? Peter fixates on this. And at first, I know Peter's an easy target. And I was going to be like, Peter, you missed the theological depth here. But then I had to meditate on this. Peter fixates on, being, on his proximity to the Savior. If you're going to fixate on one thing, Jesus, where are you going? Because I want to be with you. You're going to be glorified? Great. I'm all in. Love one another? Sure. Leave? Wait. What? And, and, and so, so Peter just holds on to that, like, don't ever leave me. That is a good and noble desire. And in Peter, this is one of the rare examples in John where we can actually emulate Peter. Because it's so easy to talk about the glory of God and, and, and the love of God. But if you don't first know the Savior, if that love doesn't come from your desire to be with the Savior, it's empty. It has no foundation. So this is a moment, Peter, that we can pay attention to. Jesus says, you cannot follow me. Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. You can't follow me to my death because I'm going to the cross for your sins. You can't ascend with me on high because this is my throne You can't follow me now because the Son must be glorified first. But after these things, then you can follow me. Let me accomplish it for you. Then you can follow behind. After I've accomplished securing my people, establishing my kingdom through redemption, rising from the dead and ascending on high, then you will join me. But Peter says to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? Man, the more I read this this week, keep underlining now. How many times have we cried out to God, why don't you fix this now? Lord, why don't you come back now? Lord, I don't want to be without you for another moment. This is beautiful. Why can't I follow you now? What a great question and what a great sentiment. But as people like to say, Peter is a little extra. You know, like, Peter, Peter's got to take it one step further. Why can't I be with you now? Stop, Peter, while you're ahead. Because he goes on, I will lay down my life for you. Oh, man, he has the best of intentions. But does he really know what this means? I mean, if we're honest, we all identify with shoot, ready, aim, Peter. You know, uh, we, we understand to be so excited we say things that we don't even really understand what we're saying. And the irony here is that this is going to bring on the greatest shame of Peter's life. Because he puts his foot in his mouth and says, I will lay down my life for you. It would be the greatest shame because Jesus is going to correct him. But the irony here is, is that Jesus' greatest, his glory, is laying down his life for Peter. But after the Holy Spirit and after some maturing there will be a day when Peter will do this very thing. He will lay down his life for the Savior. He will become a martyr. He will be crucified like his Savior. It takes him a little while. Peter's a slow learner. But decades later, he'll become a pillar of the church. He will encourage the church dispersed. And he'll be crucified like his Savior. But now, Jesus has a teaching moment. I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered him, will you? Will you lay down your life for me? Really, Peter? Truly, truly, I say to you, pay attention, Peter. I've got something you need to hear. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. As we see in the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark especially, this is not just a Peter issue. All the disciples say this. All the disciples say, Lord, we will never leave you. Even if all the other disciples go, I will stand. Truly, truly, I say to you. This is a great example of Christ's love. He knew his denial. He stood there as Peter said things he did not understand and still loved him to the end. This is love. That he's willing to go for a cro- to the cross for a bunch of kids who would scatter as soon as it became difficult to them. And this passage is mentioned in every gospel. It is meant to be an example to the church. It is meant to set a precedent for us to remind us of our own arrogance and not to get ahead of ourselves and to serve an ex- as an example that will we deny Christ when it becomes most difficult? When faced with that, will we spare ourselves? Will we declare his glory or protect our own? And it is easy to poke fingers at Peter, but we need to examine ourselves when we read this. Because how many times in less severe circumstances we, have it, we could have declared Christ, but we've denied him or shied away from difficult things because it's going to make us uncomfortable in front of other people. So just a few quick thoughts. On the cross, we see the love of Christ and the glory of Christ on full display, which drives the love of his people. The cross is also used to show Peter his weakness, but emboldens him later by his Savior. Let it do the same thing for us. Let the cross embolden us. Let it define how we love and how we view love. Because ultimately we must remember that Christ was glorified for us. Our glory is in him. And our call is to love the Lord and one another until he returns. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. This is what it means to love. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the blood of Christ that took the place of our own. Thank you that he was worthy to take on your wrath that we deserve. Thank you that he is worthy to receive dominion and power and kingdom forever. Thank you that through his blood that kingdom is our inheritance. Let our love be rooted in the eternal work of Christ. Our identity be in Him. Let everything that we do and say be unto His praise and His glory. Let us look less like the world and more like Christ. Lord, guide us, shape us, convict us, teach us by Your Holy Spirit. Because it is a good thing that we are left with Your Holy Spirit until the day that Christ returns or takes us home. It is in his name we pray. Amen.